What's good, streaming people? Welcome to Canell and Bell. Danny and Raj are off today. I've got a, a, a great lineup of guests, including Brian Campbell, Brad Botkin, and Will Middlebrooks, the world champion, joining us here. And we're going to start with baseball. So we got Will here. A uh, lot to, to sort of talk about things to pick real quick, but uh, you watched the game. What did you think? Um, I was pretty bored with it through the first half, but that's just a test of the really good pitching. Yeah, everybody thought maybe so. the home run derby that we'd see some runs, both lineups fairly stacked, but the pitchers really came through, set the tone. Yeah, they did. I'm guessing they used some old baseballs. <laughs> I don't know. These definitely weren't the juice baseballs we're used to in the MLB. So. By the way, I, I saw you were really active on Twitter. You put, <laughs> put a dude in a body bag, man. man. That was fun, huh? I was. It was entertaining. <laughs> I was. It was. To a certain point, you just kill with kindness, right? No, yeah. dude, you did you did a great. But job. But we were talking ball, and you know, someone had to step in. Check out the timeline there, Will, on Twitter. <laughs> uh, as we're taking a look at the highlights again, you're talking about Justin Verlander, Hinjin Ryu, and then all these pitchers again. Really, not a lot of runs until you got to the late innings. I admittedly was watching the movie, so I didn't catch it until I saw Joey Gallo took my guy Will Smith deep to make it four one. Then the National League came and, and made it really close, and then. My goodness, so Roldis Chapman, I know he doesn't throw 103, 104 anymore, but his secondary pitches makes it so nasty. Those NL guys did not know what hit him. And anytime you're facing a guy that has that stigma of, okay, he has 104 in the tank, you're just getting it ready for the heater. And I, the first time I ever faced him, he was still in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And that was back when he would touch 105 like once a game, it seemed like. So I'm gearing up. He threw me five straight off-speed pitches on me. Five. Slider, slider, change up, slider, slider. And I'm sitting there uh, full count, and he throws me 104, and I don't think I've ever broken a bat so easily. Dang. The, I felt like I hit it good, and my bat just snapped in half, and it dribbled to the second base. <laughs> I mean, that's just got to be so tough. And look, I'm, you know, I'm on the media side. I, I watch a lot of baseball, but the, you know, being at the plate when you, when you worry about 100 plus, like you're always gearing up for fastball adjust secondary pitches, right. right? But there's such a big gap in the quality of pitches, it makes it nearly impossible to hit them. Oh my gosh. And yeah, it, just any guy that throws, once you get to 95 plus, it just sounds different. And I mean, then you get to the next level of 100 plus, which you're starting to see more and more guys. You get, uh, the Hicks kid in, uh, St. Louis. I know he's hurt, but mm-hmm. that's a special arm. He's throwing 103, but with movement, like he's throwing 88. That's, that's not fair. That that, there's gotta, I think we need to make a rule. <laughs> like maybe he only gets to throw one pitch. Only fastballs. Only fast, just so you have a chance, right? But it was a one-run I mean, game. It was competitive. They're trying. You know, the AL is trying to win. Yeah, it's just interesting to me too because in this format, it's you know a little bit of time in Cincy, a little bit of time in Chicago. Obviously, you got booed a little bit because the Cleveland fans remember of 2016, of course. But again, he's not a guy you see in your league, so you're not seeing him at all during the season. Maybe years, if ever. Like Muncy looked pretty lost out there, and it right. just didn't have a chance. Um, Couple other cool things that I, I took away. Uh, CC Sabathia obviously did a little mound visit. Very got a cool. chance. I thought it was really cool for, for everybody at Progressive and obviously Jacobs Field before that for people out in Cleveland. Another one though to me that was kind of, uh, as we're taking a look sort of at that great moment CC before, you know, some of the things he's doing with 250 plus wins, yeah, 3,000 strikeouts. Will we ever see that, uh, again? Nowadays, with right. pitch limits, and you don't see, and, and as important, and as much as they're paying bullpen guys, I don't think so. I don't think guys are going to be able to throw enough innings to reach those. They're just, bullpen guys are so much more important now than they used to be. Used to be, you'd, you'd want your starter to go at least seven, 
that's a quality start. And now you're seeing five innings, and you just have a you're just rattling off elite arms out of the bullpen yeah. for every team. So I think the way we view things will kind of change. To like, you know, it used to be what 300, now CC at 250. Someone, if they can get to that, will now be regarded, I think, higher than they were 10, 15 years ago. 300 batters. I know there's still a few out there, but right. we've seen averages go down. Right. I've obviously we've seen home runs and some slugging ribbies go up, up right. slugging and that kind of thing. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see. Now, not everything went well last night at the Midsummer Classic. Uh, okay. let's start with Jeff McNeil. And, and this is so on brand with the Mets right now so because so you have so Pete Alonzo <laughs> win the home run derby, has a great game. And then this is our guy, Keem Dermish, who was with Jim Bowden oh, and Matt Snyder covering for CBS Sports HQ. And, uh, yes, that is Jacob deGrom, the photo of the reigning NL Cy Young Award winner. And Jeff McNeil said, man, like he took the high road, Will, but he has his family there. And this is Jeff McNeil. Oh. Came in to bat in the eighth. Come on, you see the resemblance. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're be funny. Like, I mean, look, I, I think you can maybe mistake Jeff McNeil. A lot of casual baseball fans might not know he's, but you cannot mistake him for Jacob DeGrom. No, I think most baseball fans know who DeGrom is. Yeah, that's tough. He, like you said, he took the high road. I thought he handled it well, but he made his point of like, this is a big deal to me. It's a big moment. This is like, maybe, who knows if I ever have another chance to play in an all-star game and you put the wrong picture up. <laughs> and I know my family has pictures on their cell phones of that. And I'm just never going to live it down. Yeah, that was bad. <laughs> this wasn't as bad, but Philly's all-star catcher, JT Realmuto, apparently his batting helmet didn't make the trip. So here he is with Yasmani Grandal's. That was in the later innings. He actually borrowed Paul DeYoung's red helmet because it was close to the Phillies, yeah. put a Philly sticker on. But the reason he had to put on Grandal's helmet here was because uh, DeYoung was up already on the field. So, you know, a couple of snafus. You ever have that? Your your gloves, oh. your your uh, batting gloves? <laughs> you have any other wardrobe or equipment Never malfunctions or mishaps? Malfunctions. Not in, like, a big spot. In spring training, yeah. you're still getting back in the, in the groove of things. And... People forget their jerseys all the time. I've forgotten a belt. I have forgotten a jersey. And they have extra jerseys, but you don't have your number, your name on your jersey. It might not fit right. And I had to wear number 99. So <laughs> that was it. was my second year in the big leagues. Well, I forgot it. We were going to Bradenton to play the Pirates. I yeah. was with the Red Sox at the time. I got there, and I was in a full panic. Like, oh, my God. What do I do? Yeah. Like, it's fine. Here's a jersey. I mean, you wear it down. Number 99. 99, like Manny back in the day. Yeah. Talking the 99 there. <laughs> uh, the MVP, I know you picked Nolan Arenado, which would have been a, a great choice, and you did hit with Pete Alonso in the home run derby, but hometown guy, you know, good feel, good story. Like in an exhibition, you can kind of go so many different ways. You have a problem with, with, with the Beebs? I don't have a problem with it. I'm just not used to seeing a reliever in the middle. Well, a reliever. Shut down. Yeah, right, right. You, yeah, you don't. He threw one inning. I mean, he punched out the side. That was awesome. He was nasty. And, it, and it's at home. I'm sure he felt like a little added pressure, too, because he's at home. He wants to do do well in front of the home crowd. Right. And uh, he did great. He's nasty. as We see that yeah. uh, through the first half of the season. He's really good. So he got I, I got really fired up, too, when I saw Tito. You know, with his arms up, uh, Francona on the bench with yep. his arms up, like so fired up for him. I love that. He's a good man. And we've seen what it means to, to some of the younger players. Like obviously, Pete Alonso's a rookie who doubled his salary with the $1 million. We see Bieber getting a truck. I mean, that's got to feel good whether he needs it or not. You could always use some extra wheels, right? Always use it. I mean, give it to family. I mean, it's, that's a, that'd be a good birthday, birthday gift to, to a parent, maybe. 
Yeah, I, I thought that was pretty cool for them. And so a lot of good stuff going on out in Cleveland. A nice tight game. You know, obviously an exhibition, but we didn't see some of the double digit scores that some people thought that we were going to maybe see last night. And obviously we went through that period, Will, of the sort of the home field advantage thing, 03 to 16. And we've been a few years removed from that. Were you ever a big fan? Um, yeah, I liked it. I mean, it just added a little incentive to the game to the players. So there's a little more. I don't know emotion maybe because I mean it definitely plays and helps you guys in the out World there. Series yeah machine, right? exactly exactly it helped us out a lot. Um, although St. Louis isn't a tough place to play, They're, the fans are great there, mm-hmm. and they you make a good play even in the World Series as an opposing team, they're cheering for you. They got a lot of and that's the Midwest for you, right? Yeah. But, uh, you're not going to see that on the East Coast, <laughs> definitely <that's for> sure. <laughs> not. So those are some of the takeaways there from last night's. All-star game that saw, again, the American League dominate. I think it's been, so seven straight. I think it's like 19 out of 22. Yeah. I know there's a tie in there, obviously, but they've been, been absolutely dominant. We thought this was the year. We thought the National League would really line up, man, right? I really did. You weren't alone, though. A lot of our analysts, uh, thought that the National League was going to come out on top. And I think the betting odds were close to even, which we haven't been able to see or right. say the last few years. A couple other things that came out from Cleveland. So if you had been, Catching Canell and Bell during the week, we've been talking about Justin Verlander and his comments, so we're not going to spend too much time on it, but there is sort of a, a rebuttal there in terms of the balls, whether they're being juiced or not. And Rob Manfred, the commissioner, insists that they are not altered, right? So whether we believe that or not, quote, baseball has done nothing, given no direction for an alteration in the baseball. The flaw in logic is that baseball wants more home runs. If you sat in an owner's meetings and listened to people on how the game is played, that is not a sentiment among the owners for whom I work. He also added, quote, there is no evidence from scientists that the ball is harder. However, he acknowledged that the uh, the drag of the baseball is less. That's a lot of explanations and using a lot of terms that I think a lot of people, I've got to be honest, including myself, might not understand. Translate that for me. What is the commissioner saying? Oh, you put me on the spot now. I didn't go to college, Tommy. <laughs> no, but the drag is just basically the the wind resistance, right? Okay. So it's I think it's because the, the seams sit a little lower. But to me, that tells me if the seams are sitting lower, it's pulled tighter, which would make it harder. Right? That's a, that don't make sense to me. Um, I mean... The numbers show that yes, the balls are different, but but as I, we pointed I'm, out, strikeouts are also up exactly. Too, so so I don't know how much that thing, affects. Right? How, how does that affect spin rate? Does it affect? Uh, you, know, you said the drag, or, so that that's wind resistant. Are guys able to throw harder because of that? I don't know. I I, I want to see like a really good study on it because I'm I'm very interested now. Yeah, and again, I mentioned Justin Verlander sort of being very vocal and public about it. Yeah. You know, he has the strikeouts this year. He's right up there at the top. I think it's 153 strikeouts this year, yeah. which is, again, what we expect out of Verlander. But what we've highlighted here is what I think he's complaining about. <laughs> he leads the league with 26 homers allowed. And I looked it up. Last year, he gave up 28 total. So he's already close to his match last year. I think Dylan Bundy gave up a league-leading 41 last year. So right now, again, at the break, Verlander... To our point, doing the kind of the both the sides of the coin, which is he's striking out dudes, but he's given up a lot of runs. What are you seeing out of Verlander? Well, that's baseball now. That's uh, homers and strikeouts. There's guys, their intent at the plate is to do damage and get their slugging up. That's that's how we're scoring runs now. We're not manufacturing runs like baseball. Old school baseball is used to bunning guys over, moving the guy over. There's not as much stress on 
those fundamentals and now it's more get a pitch to do damage and, and guys throw harder. A lot more guys throw hard now. So Verlander, like I said yesterday, he's not the anomaly anymore. Yeah. He doesn't stand out. He's not a rarity. Everyone throws 95 to 100 now. So you're not as surprised to see that. So you're going to react to it better. You're going to see it better. You're going to hit it better. So Verlander's a veteran guy, making a lot of money, has the World Series championship hardware and the ring. Then there's guys that are the future of baseball. Some of them all-stars that we saw this weekend at the festivities and guys that want to come up and be the next uh, star slash superstar. And yet there's this conversation, Will, about service time, right? And Tony Clark, who's a, a head of the uh, Players Association and the union there, saying, quote, that was very interesting to me having those two guys. He's referencing Pete Alonzo and Vlad Guerrero Jr., the guys that were in the home run derby and the stars really in the final when I say that the best players should be on the field at all times, the, the best ones should be on the field. Again, we're talking about, look, situations about the rules and the way that Major League Baseball works in terms of, of what constitutes one year, which is 172 days. So we've seen it before, and baseball fans will know a rookie can come up and get a call up late, play a little bit, and then bring back the next year and still be considered a rookie. Then there's sort of the next level of a, of the service time we're talking about, and we have we have instances and examples of of notable cases here of service time manipulation. So you see guys that you know, like Ronald Acuna Jr., but he just got his deal. Chris Bryant, George Springer, Bryce Harper, and Evan Longoria—all guys that are good, which is why they're on Bryant, the notable one list. day. <laughs> that is, I mean, but one. Right? You expect anything different from Madden. He's just perfect. Perfection when it comes to numbers. I mean, they know That's, what I was there doing. for his debut. For, for Bryant. Bryant's. I was playing in San Diego, and we went to Wrigley. That was when they were redoing the outfield. So the outfield seats, no one was sitting out there. It was just concrete slabs. It's like 24 degrees in April. And uh, he debuted against uh, James Shields, and Shields sh- shredded him that day. Mm. Like three punch outs. Um, that was but, like peak Shields too for San Diego at the time. He was throwing well, yeah, doing well, yeah, right? good change up. He was nasty, and then you know declined since then. But sure, um, yeah, I was there for that debut. If now that we're getting into this conversation, yeah, um, yeah, it's just amazing how perfect the front office knows. Like has it down. Like this is how many days he can stay in AAA, or we can send him down at this point in the year where we have an easy schedule, maybe, so we don't need him. So we send him down for a month or so. So he loses it, you know, enough service time where he's under team control for an extra year. How does that factor in? Like, take me through the mindset of a, a young player because Pete Alonso, you know, on an opening day roster, Fernando Tatis Jr. with the Padres on an opening day roster. Then there's Vlad Guerrero, which famously has been held back, and people talk about, you know, when is he coming up? And you know, team makes excuses. Okay, I gotta work on defense. Got to kind of do this. And, and meanwhile, he's hitting balls literally out of minor league ballparks, right? right? And he's and clearly ready. And I know he struggled kind of a little bit here to hit major league pitchers and stuff. But what would you say or advise to some younger players that might be in a position? Is there really anything they can do? There's absolutely nothing you can do. Just keep playing ball. I mean, your time's going to come. You're clearly, if you're in this discussion, you're clearly doing a lot of things right, and the team wants you there if this is an issue. So at the worst, it's two weeks in AAA. It's an extended spring training, basically. Go get more at-bats because they're not too worried about how your at-bats go. Yeah. You see a lot of these guys start the year and not do amazing in AAA, but still come up because they hit that spot where they can come up and st- still have that extra year of uh, controllability. 
current CBA expires the 2021 season. And again, uh, it'll be interesting to see. Now, a lot of the players, like including Acuna Jr. that we just saw, have been locked up. Some of these young guys are getting some big deals. Oh, so, yeah. um, front offices know what they're doing, whether it's service time manipulation or contracts. It's definitely a new era. You know, that's sort of David Sampson and, and Jim Bowden's department, of course, which we break down. And then getting Will's sort of player experience has been fantastic as well. So, all right, let's, uh, Debo, what are we ending with one more time here with baseball? Trade deadline. So there are going to be players that are going to be moved. Uh, who are some of the guys that you're looking out for that, that can be impact players for potential playoff teams? Uh, number one, I think Madison Bumgarner gets moved. He's probably at the top of the list for lefty rental. You know, his, his contract's up after this year. He's got a really good postseason track record. So a lot of contenders are going to want that. I don't know if he'll start or be in the bullpen. It just depends on the squad that picks him up. But somebody's, I feel like somebody's going to pick him up for sure. The Giants also have a couple, uh, bullpen arms with Will, Will Smith, Smith, yep. Uh, Sam Dyson, uh, Tony Watson. They have a ton of guys over there that, and they're going to shed their, their contracts. I'm pretty sure. It's, uh, it's so funny because like the Giants, and I'm a Giants guy given the Bay Area, the Giants <laughs> finally have a closer and bullpen guys in a season where they don't need it. Isn't that weird? Isn't it funny? <laughs> how it works, so out? works that way. Years after year, and then the Melanson deal—they, you know, some would say they overpay, but it's like you—you you need relief pitching, and the year you have it, you're well, probably Melanson was so good, and then you just—he's having, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I have, oh, Stroman. We can't leave out Stroman. No, Mark Stroman. In my, in my opinion, yep. Stroman is probably the the best right-handed guy out there, trade-wise. Yeah, he's got he's controllable through next season. He's only making seven million, seven and a half million, which for a front end starter, that's not bad at all. When you're looking, we're talking about Fairlander making thirty three million the next yeah. for, for for this year alone. Mm-hmm. So um, I could see a Boston who came out and said we we need to make our rotation better. They need to, I think they need to worry about their bullpen, but that's for another day. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and then New York's looking for a starting pitcher as well. So. Um, I could see Stroman being a really good fit in New York, and they have prospects. Clint Frazier could possibly be in that in that uh, in that trade. All right, we'll be keeping track as we get closer to the deadline. Will going to be breaking it down as it happens, man. Thanks for stopping by. Appreciate of course. it. Thanks for having me. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. All right, back here, Canell and Bell again, Danny and Raja off. Now joined by Brad Bakken, NBA writer, who joins us as well as CBS Sports HQ. So uh, I laid out there in the news in 90s some of these changes and the challenges. It's been tested in the G League, the Summer League. What do you think about the you know the installation of this in the NBA this season? The replay. Uh, I like the coach's challenge, but I think it should be limited to coach's challenges. I, I think that replay, it, it really obviously – screws up the flow of the game. Uh, nobody likes to play stoppage in big moments. It's anticlimactic to go over to the sideline and put the headset on and kill the whole rhythm of the game uh, at every turn, every time there's a turnover, every time there's a halfway controversial call. Uh, and I think just adding more opportunities to add more replay, I don't agree with it. I mean, 
to me, it should be like the NFL. You get a certain amount of challenges, and then that becomes a strategy for coaches to have to play out throughout the course of a game. And if you use your challenges too early and there's a play at the end of the game that that ends up being kind of swinging, a game-swinging play, and you don't have any challenges left, then that's your fault. I think that would become kind of a fun strategy to pay attention to throughout the course of a game, and it would limit the number of replays. I just, I think adding replays is adding on to what is already a problem. So you approve the coach's challenge, which you don't particularly like or disprove of is, is that sort of final two minutes overtime where it's now initiated by a third party out somewhere else. They can then take a look as they see fit. The thing for me, Brad, is that I think if they are going to do that and go that path, which obviously they've laid out here and they're going to do, I think there should be a shot clock. I think there should be a 30-second to 60-second to window where, like, if you can't determine or overrule something, like, it should just stand the way it's called. Yeah. you agree? I agree with that. No question. And I think that they'll move more toward that than what I'm suggesting because there's just so much at stake. Uh, and the players and the coaches are so concerned with being wronged in a, in a pivotal call. Uh, I don't think it'll ever go away from replay, unfortunately. But I, look, I just, I think the stuff evens out. And I think, again, you don't have to kind of get screwed by a call at the end of a game if you manage your challenges successfully and intelligently throughout the course of a game. I think you need to put that on a coach, uh, that if a play happens and he thinks he's got a chance to have it overturned in his favor, he needs to have a challenge in his back pocket. Uh, to me, and, and look, the only calls that matter are not calls, uh, that happen in the last two minutes, right? So like the Warriors, for instance, in that last game, uh, against the Raptors, the closeout game that they lose in the finals, they end up losing by a point, right? And there was a play in the first half, I believe, that Draymond Green got credited with a two point shot that he clearly made a three point shot. Now, you know, it's easy to put the two and two together that they lost by one and that was a one point differential. Right. I mean, the game may have changed according to the score somewhat. You don't know. Right. But that's an important call that Steve Kirk has said, all right, that's worth me using a challenge here. I think the strategy of that, uh, outweighs that you might miss a call, uh, in the final two minutes. I also, we talked about this earlier on HQ, but. I think it's dangerous territory to review all turnovers out of bounds. That call in particular almost always goes to the team that was handling the ball or against the team that was handling the ball. When you knock the ball out of somebody's hands, it almost always hits the ball handler's hand last. And those calls get overturned a lot. They are crucial calls at the end of the game, and it's not the spirit of the rule. The defender knocked the ball out of the offensive player's hands, he knocked it out of bounds. But when you slow it down frame by frame and you start reviewing every play, it usually touches the guy's fingertips that had the ball initially. And I don't think that's the spirit of it. That that play in particular really bugs me at the end of games. So to to counter that, I think they either need to re-sort of legislate the rule of that or, again, decide in 30 seconds or less and then figure out... Yeah, but how do you, how do you re-legislate the rule? I mean, if it is off him... You know, if it's off the ball handler's hands, it's off him. So I think that's one of those things where be careful what you wish for. You didn't get that call right in the spirit of the rule, right. but in the replay, it's right. It went off of him, and I just think that uh, it's unnecessary. All right, moving on to Russell Westbrook. So there's a, a, almost a new day in, in Oklahoma City with Paul George leaving via trade. They amassed, uh, obviously, a big haul from the Clippers, which they sort of amassed with 
Blake Griffith and Tobias Harris. Now there's the talk about him entertaining and being open to the idea of now leaving OKC, the franchise he's only known for his 11-year career, and everything points to the Heat. So we've talked a lot about the Heat. We've done it here on Canel and Bell and, and, and CBS Sports HQ. Why don't you tell me some of the other trade partners that you think in your eyes would work for Russell Westbrook? The Pistons make some sense. The question would be, do they want to commit to that much money when they already have Blake Griffin on the books for a huge contract? Uh, but they're a team that could convince themselves that with Russell Westbrook, Blake Griffin, and Andre Drummond, uh, that they could be a top four team in, in a pretty open Eastern Conference. Uh, so if they can make the money work and they could put together a package that would actually be attractive enough to OKC, it would have to center on future draft picks because they don't have the young players that some of these other teams have. The, the Heat with Bam Adebayo and Justice Winslow and Tyler Hero, who they just drafted. Uh, the Pistons don't have that attractive of young players. Uh, Luke Kennard, maybe, but they would have to kind of dig into their future draft picks. But but they would make some sense. Uh, the Magic, I think, make the most sense to me. Okay. Uh, What's interesting about Westbrook is his market is limited because you can't be a really good team because those teams already have their alpha. And you can't be a really bad team that's in clear rebuilding mode because that salary does nothing for a rebuild. So there's just kind of this small group of teams right there in the middle. Uh, and the Magic are one of those teams. They're a playoff team last year. But you could understand if they could move off of, say, Mo Bamba. Him and Jonathan Isaac are fairly redundant, right? And Mo Bamba is a pretty good prospect for a team that is now moving forward in a rebuild. If they could get off Bamba and then throw in Evan Fournier for the money and somehow keep Aaron Gordon. And if you're looking at a team with Russell Westbrook, Nikola Vucevic, Terrence Ross, uh, and Aaron Gordon, that's a team that can be a really good team in the East. Now they might have to go off of uh, Aaron Gordon to make the deal work. Sure. They've got to, they've got to include some money somehow. It also depends a lot on the Markel Fultz market. How much longer our team's going to continue to buy into the potential of him resurrecting his career. Uh, but if they could throw that in, that's an enticing package, I think, for OKC to consider. Uh, and there, there are a few other teams. I mean, the Rockets are going to get in play. It would have to be centered on, on Clint Capella and Eric Gordon. Um, and, and that could be a play that, that the Thunder would be interested in. I don't know how that fit works, uh, with Russell Westbrook and James Harden. Uh, those two guys need to control the ball a lot to be effective. Uh, but we know they're star hunters. So I think, you know, if you had to narrow it down to say five teams, you know, the Heat, the Pistons, the Magic, uh, the Rockets, and, and kind of a, there's always a, there's always an X factor team that, that jumps out. The Wolves need a point guard. Uh, I could see maybe Indiana if, if they could get a package together, but there's not a ton of teams. That's the thing for me though. Like, like the Pistons would be kind of fun because you get Blake and, and it'd be fun. They'd be competitive. You mentioned top four, but they're not going to contend. Well, they're not, well, well, none of these teams are. Right. And then the Magic are star deprived, but that, but then it's like if you're Russ, that means you're not chasing a chip. You're not, you're not going. But it's not, again, it's not up to Russ. Correct. That's the key. This, is, this whole thing is, you know, OKC is going to look at the package that they're going to get back. The, the fact of the matter is there is no team that is within a championship that's going to want Russell Westbrook at that price because they have their guy. Uh, and frankly, Westbrook has not proven to be that type of championship player. So I think it's a team that needs the name splash, right. that needs the energy and the momentum behind acquiring a player like Russell Westbrook. And that's why, I mean, I know we're trying to talk about these other teams. But the Heat make the most sense. Uh, they have Jimmy Butler. 
you put Russell Westbrook together, who's derided for a lot of his game, right? But he's still a really, really good player, a really productive player. The guy averaged a triple-double. You put him next to Jimmy Butler, and you've also got some money coming off the books next year. Kelly Olynyk and James Johnson have player options. Goran Dragic will come off the books. They can have about $50 million in money right there. With Westbrook and Butler in place, Miami being an attractive destination for free agents, you could understand how that would be enticing for another all-star, perhaps not a huge star, but an all-star to come join them. And then suddenly they are in the title picture. I think they're the only team of these teams we've talked about that within the next two years um, could be a, a fringe title contender. Let's end with a team I know you've been high on, and, and but people have kind of jumped off the bandwagon. That's the Golden State Warriors, and that's a lot to do with Kevin Durant obviously leaving to, to the Nets. But they have retooled, as, as Bob Myers and Joe Lacob have done, to try and mitigate the loss of KD. So you talk about the D'Lo acquisition. Something that's kind of flown under the radar, the Amari Spellman uh, yep. acquisition, Burks as well. I mean, Burks, what are you looking yeah. at in terms of Golden State and the prospects for them opening night? They're going to be really good. You know, anybody, this this fall off of the Warriors has been grossly exaggerated, right? They're going to go in to opening night next season with three all-stars on their team in D'Angelo Russell, uh, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green. The latter two of those are arguably the best offensive and defensive player in the league. Uh, so they're going to be really good right away. And then Clay Thompson's going to be back post-trade deadline. Uh, and then those those guys you mentioned, like re-signing Kevon Looney was one of the huge value signings of this whole free agency period. Anybody who watches the Warriors and pays attention to anything more than the glamour aspects of them knows how important Looney is to what they do. He's a monster on the offensive glass. He can come out and defend on the perimeter. He gives them size at the rim. They make a sneaky signing for Willie Cauley-Stein, who can be like an upgraded JaVale McGee. Remember when JaVale McGee signed with the Warriors and everybody thought, this is crazy. JaVale McGee, this is crazy. He turned out to be really good. Uh, and, and Willie Cauley-Stein can be a, a better JaVale McGee for them. And they got him on a minimum deal. Uh, Alec Berg gives them wing depth to take away some of the loss of Andre Iguodala. Spellman is a floor stretcher. He's a big who can shoot. We know that that's big when they come. They need to get that floor spacing opened back up with the loss of Durant. I mean, this is going to be a really good team, not to mention the fact that they could still potentially move D'Angelo Russell at the deadline. A team like the Wolves, I think, would be interested in them. Let's say a package comes back with Robert Covington. Uh, they, they probably need another defender more than they need Russell scoring. But bottom line, by the time we get to the playoffs, and they're going to be in the playoffs, let's just, let's agree on that. The, the idea that they're going to not make the playoffs with Steph Curry and Draymond Green is ridiculous. So they're going to be in the playoffs. And once they get there, you're rolling in with Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Steph Curry, Kevon Looney, and D'Angelo Russell, and you don't think you can cause problems? I'm telling you right now, not only are they a playoff team, They'll be a factor when they get there. That'll be interesting because if we say conservatively they are 6, 7, or even 8, and the way that both the Lakers and Clippers, the way they're built with their injured stars, will have to do some sort of load management, that spells trouble for whoever's in that 1, 2, possibly. Listen, I think Denver's going to get the 1 seed. You're trying to tell me a 1-8 Denver-Golden State matchup is going to feel comfortable for Denver? Right. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying. Whether it's Utah... 
Denver, any of these teams that will be gunning for the number Absolutely. one seed, that'll be that'll be. And cool. what 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 gets overlooked a lot about the Warriors is their competitiveness. This is a collection of guys who were individually overlooked their whole career, and they've become stars. Steph Curry's become a star, but he still plays with that. I'm going to prove something to you. Chip on his shoulder. This idea that the Warriors are being doubted. I'm telling you, Draymond Green can make about thirty million dollars extra next year if he if he wins Defensive Player of the Year or he makes All NBA. These guys are going to come out gunning more than you think. They're going to, you know, they'll take some nights off after this five year run, but they're not just going to coast next year. I mean, I could see this team winning fifty five games and being a four seed, uh, no question about it. And they got fresh legs moving out Livingston and Iggy. With all due respect, great Warriors, but uh, boy, if you watch them, obviously on the downtrend. Yeah, on the uptrend as always, Brad. Thanks, man. Okay. Appreciate it. All right, everybody, welcome back to Canel and Bell. We will take you out to New York for the Women's National Team Parade once there's real action going on. So until then, we've got the action right here. Brian Campbell, BC, State of Combat. And I mentioned it before in HQ, whether it's combat with a C or combat with a K. My man is delivering on multiple platforms. BC, how you doing, man? Oh, still have a, uh, I don't know what you're going to call that, a contact high from UFC 239. I'm still fired up, my man. It helps when you're not sleeping much on the road. Dude, international fight week. So you were in Vegas, New York yesterday. You're back in Connecticut, but then you're going to be back on the road again. So you got to load up on all the vitamins and things, whatever the other fighters and trainers are offering. Take what they do and, and hydrate. So um, let's just, I mean, there's so much to, to cherry pick here from, from UFC 239, from the quick knockouts to the split decisions. And let's start with with Bones Jones, right? Because that was obviously the co-headlining event out there with Amanda Nunes and Holly Holm. I'm not sure how many people thought it was going to go the distance. And Tiago Santos literally fighting on one leg, BC. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway as you still now have a few days to digest what we saw there with, with Jones? I mean, Tiago Santos is almost the moral victor here in the sense that, you know, casual and mainstream fans had no idea who he was. Yeah, he's 7-1 and one in his last eight fights, but he's 35 years old. And he kind of, you thought he'd be just another John Jones move the chain opponent. Instead, he came out and landed bombs. And then when you find out afterwards that he severely injured that knee, tearing what is MCL, PCL, IRA, FBI, every, every part of that kneecap wasn't there and he went five hard rounds and nearly pulled off the upset i think in the end tommy it's a weird night for john jones he almost played himself he's so good and there were stretches of that fight where he was outright great yet he almost was playing with his food his strategy didn't seem to be in light of what the circumstances were and that's a wounded opponent in front of him who you would think given Jones's wrestling background that he could easily take down and finish in those later rounds instead Jones standing in danger standing in the pocket and he almost left Las Vegas empty-handed it would have been one of the worst exits leaving Las Vegas since uh, Nicolas Cage set his house on fire in that movie so look, health aside and injury recovery aside, what are the chances we're going to see Joan Santos part de? I think no chance at all because it doesn't seem to make a ton of business sense for UFC. That's why Dana White afterwards was not only shooting it down, but was doubling down on the idea that, hey, if you scored this for Santos, you should probably never score fights again. Now look, Dana... No stranger to hyperbole. But here's what I think they're really trying to say. John Jones has teased a heavyweight move forever. We want it. 
Man, like, it just seems like that's the next logical step for this guy who we're already calling maybe the greatest of all time to cement that legacy. But I talked to him on Friday. He says it's inevitable, but it's not. There's no timetable. He seems to think he has more business at 205. We all know he doesn't when you look at the rankings. So what are they really trying to say? I think they're really waiting to see what happens August 17th when Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic have that must-watch rematch at UFC 241 in Anaheim. If Cormier wins, you have to believe UFC wants to do the trilogy fight. Jones, DC3 would be arguably the biggest fight you can make in the sport outside of maybe a Connor and Habib rematch. And there's so much at stake in that legacy-wise. The idea of Jones, if they do it at heavyweight, winning a second world title, beating his rival, gives DC the opportunity to walk away repairing the one hole in his resume. I think they're waiting for that because if Miocic wins that fight, you could either do DC Miocic 3 or maybe John Jones says to himself, why am I going to rush and fight those bigger guys? It seems to be a little bit of they're saying one thing, they're meaning another. Let's just wait till August 17th before we can truly define what's next. Um, it's going to be interesting because if if Jones has to, to be able to add a little bit of weight there, I wonder what, I mean, we see what sort of, and I don't want to call Daniel Cormier fat, right? But uh, oh, he's thick, at, brother. He's thick, man. We've Let's seen him at heavy. Right? We've seen him at heavyweight. There's a little bit of extra baggage there. Uh, obviously, when we saw him take Stipe on the, the the first time, look, there's a conversation about whether John Jones is the greatest of all time. Certainly, in that conversation, it's a pretty short list of what GSP and, and Spider Silva, and we've even thrown obviously Amanda Nunes, who is also on the UFC 239 fight card. Look, she has beaten a lot of people in different divisions, some people multiple times. She took down Holly Holm, which a lot of people thought uh, the preacher's daughter was going to have uh, more than a puncher's chance. In fact, some good value in terms of, uh, of betting maybe some some money on Holly to, to pull the upset. What is your thoughts? You spent some time with Amanda before the fight, and actually Holly as well, sort of where she's at in that conversation, B.C.? Well, Nunes has outright secured greatest of all time on the female side. There's not an argument. You just, you know, you don't know S about this game, as the old Floyd Mayweather senior would say, if you're thinking that. So your question's an interesting one. What you had up there was a graphic of who I really think is in the upper room when you're talking about MMA history. Who has at least uh, a claim, potentially, at calling themselves the GOAT? I think Amanda Nunes has entered that conversation her resume is insane, has destroyed all of the glossy former champions and starlets she has been in the cage against. Here's the problem with the idea of how does she pass Jones? How does she become the greatest fighter ever regardless of gender? This isn't a debate of, well, a woman's never going to beat a man. It's more of a debate of female MMA is such a young sport, even compared to the only 25-year run of men's MMA. So what that means is there just really hasn't been a ton of depth. Nunez has, yes, the best resume of any woman. She's destroying these opponents in ways that other female champions outside of maybe Ronda Rousey with the armbars weren't able to do. But John Jones, over the course of his career, cleaning out this light heavyweight division on two separate occasions, including that original Murderer's Row uh, all-time great historic run there when he first came of age and won the championship from Shogun Hua, it would be hard for Amanda Nunez to consistently find the competition to best what Jones has done, or George St. Pierre. And that's just the reality of the men's game versus the women's game right now. For Nunez to do that, here's what has to happen, Tommy. She's going to have to stay active over both divisions for the rest of her career, really put the idea of title defense records 
for men or women so far out and ahead that no one could ever double it. And on top of that, I think John Jones would have to slip up a few times and lose because Jones is the wild card in that group right there of the potential goats. He has the most opportunity to extend his legacy. Tommy, if he goes up to heavyweight, I mean, George St. Pierre won titles in two divisions, but let's be honest, he beat an old Michael Bisping and never defended his title at middleweight. If John Jones goes up to heavyweight, wins the title, and then takes down these these absolute giants who can end a fight with one punch, I'm sorry, Amanda Nunez is great. Getting to that table is a great story. You're not going to beat John Jones in the GOAT argument. In fact, you may not come close. John Jones is a special, special, special athlete, and he's only 31. And with all that trouble outside the cage that he's put behind him, he's still got potentially another decade to extend and add to this legacy. Nunez's story, fantastic. But there is a ceiling based on where we're at right now in the women's game. And she's going to find that out, by the way, Tommy, in her next few fights, when it may be very, very hard to find anyone credible, let's say, outside of a cyborg rematch. All right. We've got uh, about a little less than two minutes left to go, but I want to pin you down on this summer, which we have eight UFC cards over the next nine weeks or so. Give me the top fight. If you were making the matchmaker and you had your druthers, what would that fight be for you? Which one are you looking forward to the most here? Oh, let's go to let's go to Abu Dhabi. It's UFC 242 in September. It's Habib Nurmagomedov putting his unbeaten streak on the line, his lightweight title against current interim champion Dustin Poirier. Tommy, you know about 155, lightweight, historically deep division right now for the sport of MMA. All kinds of killer, no filler, big stars. But Dustin Poirier is kind of hot right now. He has figured out how to get the best out of himself. And he might have, really, I'm being honest here, he may have the perfect skill set to really give Habib trouble. This fight's super important, not just to the idea of what happens next for the winner. They get Tony Ferguson, they get Conor McGregor, who knows, big business to come. But this is a tough matchup for Habib. And look, think about the idea of him going to Abu Dhabi in the Middle East, very Muslim background there. He's going to walk in as a superstar. He's used to being the villain. He's used to getting booed. He was in Vegas over the weekend for a press conference. The crowd damn near booed him out of T-Mobile Arena. It's going to be see interesting when that script is flipped. This is an incredible athlete in Habib Magomedov pulling off a 27-0 and run. Tommy, you know this sport. You just don't see that. All right. Love it, BC. Our time is up, but the time that we spent, well worth it. Appreciate it, man. Check out the State of Combat podcast with our guy, Brian Campbell. BC, good to see you, man. Thank you, sir. So we're going to wrap things up here, and there's this thing in the NBA. We're going to go back to the association, right? Marcus Morris um, <laughs> sort of had his handshake deal and a wink-wink deal there with the Spurs where he was going to go two years, $20 million. Of course, uh, Morris playing his ball over with the Boston Celtics previously. And then, so that was this last weekend, right? And then there's all of a sudden a kind of uh just kidding slash do-over. Now, all of a sudden, uh, yeah, he's reporting out here that there's a one-year deal from the Knicks out there for $15 million. ESPN also adding to the report there. So you're talking about two for 20. And instead, there's there's the one for 15. Now, there's some some other things in here that are at play. Some may say the clutch sports aspect with all the guys that they would have, but here's here's why this is sort of a big deal. It's it's not uncommon for players to to say, "Hey, I'm going to go here and then go somewhere else." But what San Antonio did was because they thought they were getting 
Morris on this two-year, $20 million deal. Well, they made a lot of moves, right? They made a lot of moves, including sending Navis Bertens out and then getting Demar Carroll, restructuring some of that money. Again, all these moving parts to get a player, which now they are in danger of not getting. So there's there's this thought out here about the way business is done, the way the ethics are done, that you know those in Morris's camp should be honoring this deal and be going with the Spurs, and again potentially could go to the Knicks. So I'm going to also stay on the the Knicks topic here, but but pivot slightly in terms of what they're doing. Of course, they are a team rebuilding, struck out with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. To a lesser degree, some of the other big-time free agents like Anthony Davis, although Anthony Davis was not really ever super linked to, to New York. But still, they are the mecca, right? That is a place like the Lakers, big market, where you expect to be able to get free agents, and they haven't been able to do that. If you've been paying attention to what the Knicks have been doing outside of Julius Randle and his three-year deal, a bunch of two-year deals with basically all six foot six, six foot seven guys, and there's maybe a thought here. Brad Bakken had a list of guys they thought Russell Westbrook would be good with. I thought actually there'd be a, a good fit. The only problem is only if Russell Westbrook was on a two-year deal. Now he's on a four-year, $170 million deal. So he is not going to be in a position to go to a team that's looking to rebuild. And instead of a, a four-year deal, two years just not something that would be probably feasible and possible at this point. But back to the Morris thing. It'll be interesting to see the way things are done. I've, I've looked on Twitter. Some people are actually saying Pop's got a little karma coming to him. There's a little bit more inside that we don't have time to get to here today. But again, um, you know, those, those handshake type deals would be interesting to see what that happens with the NBA in a, in a time where we're all about player empowerment and player movement. All right. That's going to do it here. Happy hump day, everybody. Hopefully you've got your morning started off on a good note. I'm going to go join Jenny Dell and cover you the rest of the time in CBS Sports HQ. Again, the Women's National Team Rally will bring it to you live next hour here on HQ. We'll see you.